The topics and themes on our program are generally adult in nature and may contain explicit language. Therefore, these conversations may not be suitable for younger audiences. What does being typed out mean to you? Telling your own story. It's just really, truly being who you hey, are. Hey, this is me. This is who I am. And Labels this is my space. Categorize. So we can be identified and for that reason to be excluded. The way that we integrate people into society or do not. To literally write my name and leave my ink print in the world of stories to come. <laughs> and that's it. Like, you know, I'm, I'm here and uh, I exist. This is the Typed Out, Typed out. Typed out. Typed out Podcast. You're listening to the Typed Out Podcast. I am your host, Nick Polifrone. Every week, Typed Out aims to deliver conversations that seek to expand the boundaries of understanding and acceptance. My guest today is a hip-hop dancer turned entrepreneur, having toured through Europe and Asia before her passion brought her to New York City from her home country of Japan. Now, after decades of pursuing her passion, Rebecca Amayazumi has landed in London, where she is spearheading her new business initiative, The Unified Wolves, an experiential design agency that merges brand experience with the performing arts. Please welcome my Nechan and Nihongo no Senpai, hey. Becky Amayazumi. <laughs> hey, Becky, how's it going? Hi, Nick. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Thank you for joining me all the way from London. I'm very good. Very excited to be here. Thank you. Thank you, Nick. I'm so excited to speak with you. And for our listeners, uh, Becky and I have become close friends. Uh, we started as roommates uh, back in 2015. And so um, I would say our friendship grew from that and just through like conversations of living together, like uh, just sharing in so many interests and you're from Japan and I have like a huge affinity for Japanese culture, which <laughs> you've helped foster. So uh, thank you to. for that. And oh, recently you, got my results back from the JET program, which I applied Woo-hoo! to, and you helped me um, get ready for that. So uh, my pleasure. It was fun getting you ready for the interview, asking questions that they might ask. So yeah, I always, it's it, always a pleasure, Nick. Yeah. Uh, Rebecca put me through like the gauntlet as far as like potential <laughs> questions that could be asked. So um, I felt pretty prepared, but up until the interview, it's like you get really nervous and then they ask yeah. you questions out of left field and you're like, I don't remember anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's how interviews are, but I think yes. I'm sure you did really good. Thank you. So as always, this podcast is made possible by audible.com and becky you uh gave me your copy of my angelou's i know why the cage bird sings which thank you for that because that book has been life-changing oh Um, for me as well and so i know that you must have a book to recommend for our listeners i do um one of my favorite books is the alchemist by paulo coelho which for me was also a life changer and uh, it's just been a phenomenal book that I keep rereading because every time I read, I'm in a different place in my life and yeah. I interpret it differently and it helps me in different ways. So it's like it's like a book that I would always have. Yeah. On my shelf. Yeah. Please, if you haven't yet read or listened to The Alchemist by Paulo Coelho, you can do so by going to www.audibletrial.com forward slash typed out you can begin your 30-day audible trial for free and download a copy of the alchemist and listen along so 
Becky, thank you for that recommendation. You're welcome. So before we get started into the episode, because you have such a fascinating family history, and then also I want to talk to you about just growing up in Japan and being biracial because your dad is Japanese and your mom is from the States. Yes. I wanted to ask you this question, which I've been meaning to ask all of my guests, and that is, what does being typed out mean to you? For me, being typed out means uh, not necessarily following the treaded path that's already been laid out, because I feel like if, if that doesn't represent who you truly are, then there's no need to follow something that's considered the norm or considered expected, because I feel like from an early childhood, I didn't really feel like I was... Uh, kind of like fitted into a certain group or uh, stereotypically Japanese or anything like that. So I just kind of like found what interested me and found what I felt passionate about and just going for it. So、yeah. I guess for me to, to make condense the, that answer a little bit, it's just really truly being who you are without wondering or worrying what other people are going to think because you really truly need to be who you are in order to blossom and reach your potential. Yeah. And you can't do that by trying to be somebody that you're not. Exactly. So I totally agree. Well, thank you for your answer. That's, that's beautiful.、So. <laughs> thank you, Nick. Okay. So your family has a church and a kindergarten, correct? Back in、mm-hmm. Japan. Yes. And so there's such a rich family history there that I'm so excited to, to have you share with our listeners because I think the, the story is so fascinating. Thank you. And it really begins with your grandparents. Yep. Um, so, my father's,、uh, my father's Japanese, my mom's American. So, my dad's side,、uh, the Japanese side, his mom、uh, grew up in Utsunomiya City.、Um, and she became Christian at a very young age. I believe she was about 14 when she was baptized.、Um, but her father was a very devout Buddhist. So,、mm. he was very much against her becoming Christian at the time. This is. In the 1920s, 30s. Yeah. So that was even before the Second World War. It was、uh, a very different time than now it is now. Yeah. And my grandmother's mother died at a very young age. And I think she died when my grandmother was only 12. So she was one of, I think, eight siblings. And、uh, her father kind of needed more help raising his children. So he actually sent her. To a Christian school, and I don't think he thought she was going to become Christian. I think it was just something that was available at the time. So she started going to this Christian school, and she was really influenced by Christianity. So she told her dad, Hey, look, I'm going to become Christian. And、yeah. he pretty much disowned her and said he doesn't want to have anything to do with her. And she was, what, like 14 at the time? Wow. So she kind of had to fend for herself. And、uh, some of her siblings stayed in touch with her, but others didn't really feel like, I guess. I actually want to bring in some interesting statistics here. Okay. Because I just did a little bit of research.、Mm-hmm. And the percentage of people who are Christian in Japan is 1%, compared to the percentage of people in the United States who are Christian is 75%. Just、oh, to、wow. put that into perspective. Yeah. 1%, 1% in Japan. So, that's, like, that's this year? Yeah, as of 2018. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? That's, that's crazy. And I think that throws into perspective just like、mm. how, because I think it's so easy to perceive Christianity as being the dominant religion、yeah. in general, especially、mm-hmm. in the United States. But 
outside of the United States, especially in in Eastern cultures, that's yeah. not the case. You know, like um, Buddhism. Yeah, Buddhism mm-hmm. is the top. Uh, in Japan, it will be Shintoism, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then uh, Islam, our top Asian religions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even it's interesting to think about that because like for your grandmother in that way, she was being typed out by choosing a Christian yeah. life, right? True. Especially in yeah. a predominantly Buddhist mm-hmm. or Shinto um, society. Yeah, that's true. So, and she was one of eight? Yeah, my dad and my aunt think it was like between eight and 11, but they're not really sure. Because wow. I think some of them died in infancy. Um, yeah. So it's, it's kind of hard to tell at this point how many siblings she had, but I know for sure she had at least seven siblings. And this was the early 1900s. Yeah, she was born in, I think, around 1915. Yeah, so it was really hard to even have, you know, kids that grew up into adulthood because Japan was such a poor country back then. Yeah. You know. And so when did she meet your grandfather? Oh, so they met actually in church and I believe in the 1930s because I I think they got married in the 30s. And it was through uh, a mutual friend of theirs that they happened to meet. Mm. And they both had, you know, um, passion for education. And for my grandmother, she really wanted to have uh, a kindergarten where she taught Christianity to uh, to children at a, starting from a very young age because she really believed in the power of uh, education and her passion of course in ministry was coupled with the passion for education so yeah it, it was very difficult I mean this was right before the war and actually during the war too when they were building the church and uh, you know they they sometimes didn't have enough food to eat they didn't have vaccinations or medical supplies and my my father and my aunt when they were young during the war like they were malnutritioned to the point where like they could barely lift their heads up from the floor you know mm. it was it was that bad um but you know my my grandparents were really eager to like make this happen and and the church is still there after 65 years yeah so she was a very headstrong very entrepreneurial and uh, strong-willed individual to get through that you know with two children to raise and a husband and a church and a kindergarten and still made it happen so i respect her very much for that yeah absolutely and yeah. as you mentioned so the kindergarten is still active today um it is. and it's being overseen by um your dad and your aunt <laughs> yes mm-hmm. and um a team of teachers as well right in yes. the community to to oversee it and yeah. uh, i remember when i was visiting back in 2016 we would wake up to the sounds of the kids in the schoolyard like <laughs> yeah. playing it was so cute and what has been like the reception of the community to this christian church and kindergarten it's it, i mean it was so positive but i initially mm-hmm. i imagine that was probably not the case well my grandmother was I think one of very few female ministers that got ordained um, in Japan in 19, I believe it was in the 1930s. Mm. And although Japan is still predominantly Buddhist, a Buddhist country, people really don't have like a negative feeling towards different religions. Mm. I think because maybe mainly it stems from the Shintoism where there's a lot of different gods embodied in this one religion yeah that if if people have other gods that they worship it's not such of a shock to them 
So the community was has been always accepting and they don't seem to have anything like any worries of their kids going to Christian school because maybe even if they're Buddhist. I mean, we had a Buddhist monk um, have two kids of his come to our Christian kindergarten. And I, I thought that was so beautiful because I, I would do the same. You know, if, if there was a kindergarten and if I had kids and if it was a different religion, as long as they're teaching and their education was sound and solid, then I, I wouldn't have a problem with that. Yeah. So I don't know. I just thought that was really interesting that people are really accepting of different yeah. religions in Japan. Yeah. And it's like you want your kids to grow up to be, you know, good people. So like, mm-hmm. exactly. however, they learn to do that. And and also like being exposed to people who are different from them. Mm-hmm. Hello, typed out um, <laughs> yeah. to really uh, see the world differently, you know, and, yeah. and get information in so many different ways so that they can be aware, you know, and they can be yeah. accepting of different people. So it's like, and this tells into uh, the conversation that I had last week with Tiffany Danielle about how education can be the first window into acceptance, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. So. I think that is, that is really everything. Education is everything because, um, I know we had this discussion before, but there was a quote that I found somewhere. I, I can't remember where I found it. It might have been Yogi T, like we said. Because <laughs> they have one of the best quotes. Hey. Yes, Yogi T Sensei. <laughs> um, it said, people who don't understand something fear that something. And people can only love what they understand. Yeah. So I think that is that goes, you know, in, in so many realms of our lives. So if, if we don't understand something, we may not be interested. If we're not interested, we don't try to uh, accept. But I think if we understand, and understanding leads to acceptance, acceptance leads to love and compassion. Yeah. And equality. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then there's, of course, the people who choose to not understand, who choose to, you know, continue to live the life, the sheltered life that they do and not, you know, extend a hand or an olive branch, as it were. But we can't deal with them today. (laughs) (laughs) Or tomorrow. Or tomorrow. Yeah. We don't have time for you. I'm sorry. Uh, but so, Becky, I wanted to ask you now about growing up in Japan. So your your dad eventually came to the States for some time, and that's where he met your mom. Yeah. Right? Carol-san. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, who we love dearly. And <laughs> both your parents. And your and Kaoru-san, your aunt, who is yeah. just the sweetest. Um, <laughs> she really is. So I've had the great fortune to uh, go back to Japan with Becky and meet her family and spend some time there and, you know, meet the teachers at the kindergarten who thought we were dating. (laughs) (laughs) It was so funny. They're like, oh my God, he's so handsome. Yeah. (laughs) We're like, oh no, this is my friend. (laughs) Right. As we're like, we... We have a pretty brotherly sisterly relationship, and it was just like, yeah. uh, EA, EA, <laughs> which means hilarious. no, no, like, but it was sweet. It was very sweet and endearing, yeah. and I appreciate it. And but they love you dearly. Thank you. Uh, oops, as I hit my mic. So your parents met here in the States, but then yes. ultimately wound up moving back to Japan. Yes. So they met in the 70s, um, and... They, they they initially moved to San Francisco where my dad had his first assignment as a minister. And I think they were about, they were about 10 years. They had my brother there. And uh, then my grandfather passed away. So my dad decided to go back to Japan to kind of take over the church and help mm. run the uh, 
the kindergarten. So I was born in Japan three years after they moved back. But interestingly enough, when I when I was a kid in the 80s, I looked up some statistics and the amount or the ratio of biracial or foreign people living in Japan was less than 1%. Wow. And this was in the 80s? Yeah, like this that was in the 80s. And it was less yeah. than 1% of people who were non-Japanese? Yeah. Wow. Or, or biracial, yeah. Or biracial, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I grew up in, in a city where it, it was not too far from Osaka. So it's, it's not like it was really in the countryside or it was really, really uh, in a big city. It was a medium-sized city. And every time I, you know, take the train, people will stare at me. People will, like, point at me. And, you know, they'll, they'll I don't know, they'll say, like, oh, I, I wonder where she's from. Or, oh, look, she's American. Because back then, if anybody looked non-Japanese, they assumed that they're American. Mm. Which is, I don't know, kind of a... I, I guess because the um, most influence they had were from America. Like, they'll have American TV channels or American products in Japan. So I think they felt the most familiar with American. So Yeah. And little did they know I spoke perfect Japanese. And then sometimes when I get off the train, I'll say something in Japanese. Like, I heard you. And they're like... Oh. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm just like shocking people, you know. Yeah, kicking um, math. but i guess um that was you know the fun part but there there were some parts that weren't so fun like when i was in elementary school their favorite game to play was like let's find the mistakes of each other they call it machigai sawashi which literally means looking for mistakes or something wrong yeah so of course i'll be the first target because i look different and i i speak english um, at home and they knew that or my mom's from a different country so they'd be like oh Becky you're you're like the first mistake because you look different it's like I'm, I'm a mistake oh my god <laughs> you know it was like kind of shocking at first and they they used to like love playing this game I used to hate playing that game but it's like what can I do like I can't run away from my environment that's that's where I was and I had to deal with it because yeah I'm sure it would have been the same if I switched schools it's just you know, a game that kids played back then. I don't know if they still play it now. Um, so it was hard. I mean, I, I had a prank call when I was probably like nine or 10. And a girl uh, from my class or it had to be a classmate because she sounded like she was my age. And she'll, I, I answered the phone. I was like, hello. And then this girl said, go home America. And I'm like, first of all, your grammar is wrong because I'm not America. <laughs> you can yeah, say I'm not go a American, bitch. but... <laughs> Anyway, I was like, what? And I was just so shocked that somebody that could have been my friend or was supposed to be my friend would prank call and say, go home, America. It's like, I remember like taking a walk. I couldn't even stay in the house. Like I took a walk in my neighborhood and I was just like, oh my gosh, like I'm not Japanese. I'm not American. I felt like I didn't belong anywhere. Like I, I would, you know, visit my grandparents in the States once a year for the summer. But I didn't really speak English that fluently. I mean, I didn't have an accent, but English was something I just spoke in the house with my parents, with my family. So it wasn't like I wasn't as fluent as I was in Japanese. And then here I am in Japan and I feel like I don't belong here either. So I'm like, oh my gosh, like I don't belong in the States. I don't belong in Japan. Like I just felt like I was floating around. Yeah. And the only reason why people were treating you differently or kids were treating you differently Mm. was because 
you look different. Exactly, yeah. You know, you have your mom's influences mm-hmm. in you just as much as your father's. So, like, yeah. that was the only thing kids were picking on. You yeah. were born and raised in Japan speaking fluent Japanese. So, like, <laughs> yeah. to be like, go home America, they're only focusing on, you know, the white aspect of you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, it was it was really shocking. I mean, I, I didn't really think somebody would do something like that, that, like, that will go out of the way to, way to call another classmate, you know? Yeah. I mean, um, what if your mom picked up the phone? Or your dad? They hung up, yeah. Yeah. But oh I, maybe they were waiting for me to pick up. They might have called us a few times. <laughs> Who knows, you know? Yeah. But I would say that was, like, one of the hardest instances that I can remember. Yeah. And, I mean, there were bullies, bullies in general, and there were bullying happening in school, but I got bullied at one point, but so did every other kid, you know? Yeah. So. I don't feel like that was because of my race or anything. I think that was just kids being kids. Yeah. Um, being mean to each other <laughs> at one point or another. Yeah. Um, but that was definitely racial. And I, I do remember feeling like, oh, wow, like somebody would actually do that. You know, do you remember? I mean, well, obviously you remember, but like the first time that race was even made aware to you, like that's just something that I was thinking about as mm-hmm. you were telling that story is like, at what point do kids, young kids, become aware of what race is, this concept of race? I never thought of that, but now that I think about it, that might have been the moment. Yeah. Because, I mean, even when they played the let's you know, find the mistake game, Yeah. It, it wasn't about race. It was just about how I looked. And I didn't really associate that with race. You know, I just associated that as I'm a product of my mom and dad. Who, yeah. who just looks different, you know? So I didn't think, oh, it's because I'm American. You know, I think it was because I just look different than my friends. Yeah. Did you ever have conversations with your parents about anything? Like the kids troubling you or did your mom ever experience any difficulty being in Japan? She, yeah, I was just talking to her about that. And she said she really didn't get like, you know, singled out or uh, any negativity from America, uh, from Japanese people, but she felt like if people were uncomfortable around her, they really tried hard not to show it. Yeah. They were trying to be polite and, you know, she moved to Japan, but 25 years, 30 years after the war, you know, America was the enemy country back then. So I'm sure some people like, especially the older generation that maybe, you know, went to war or experienced war firsthand probably had you know, maybe negative feelings or memories towards America, maybe anybody that's American, but she never experienced any harassment or anything like that. And she feels, she feels like, you know, everybody was very accepting and understanding Yeah. and very yeah, gracious to her, to her being there. Good. Yeah. But she says <laughs> sometimes like if she's, she sits on the train, um, People won't sit next to her. Like there'll be space next to her on each side. And she said, but I don't think it's because they don't want to sit next to a non-Japanese person. I think it's because they're so scared. What if she talks to me in English? <laughs> because oh. <laughs> a lot of people in Japan um, don't speak English. Now it's, you know, it's a little bit, it's changed now. But especially like in the 70s, like people, most people didn't speak English. So they were like, oh, what if she says something to us and we can't respond? <laughs> so... That's so interesting because 
here in the States, like here in New York, mm-hmm. I mean, if you were to see somebody on the train and nobody mm-hmm. were to sit next to them, we would immediately perceive that as being a racially charged yeah. motive. Yeah. And it's so interesting here for it to be a communication thing. Yeah. I was I laughing mean, when my mom said that too, because I wouldn't expect that. Yeah. who? I mean, who knows? Again, these are all supposed or presupposed, but it's like, who knows if, if that's really the case, if they're afraid that your mom might engage with them in, in English and they're just unable <laughs> yeah. to communicate. So they're they're doing the more com- the comfortable thing for themselves and removing mm-hmm. themselves from that awkwardness. <laughs> but yeah, and your mom moved there and learned Japanese, right? She's now yeah. f- pretty fluent she is yeah i mean she she's now spent more time in japan than the states like oh more than half of her life and she she did study some japanese before she moved but i mean it's so different once you're in that environment and nobody else except for my dad speaks english it's like you have to learn it or you can't you can't go grocery shopping you can't call a cab you know you can't call up your school your kid's school to find out what's happening you know yeah so it yeah she she had to learn and yeah she's she's learned it really well and i'm really proud of her i mean i'm sure it was hard when you know her kids go to japanese schools and she would meet with our teachers and try to communicate with them and you know it's a very different environment than the states but she did such a beautiful job and and my dad supported her along the way you know of course that's i didn't even think about that like how challenging that would be to have two children in a school system where you don't even understand or you're still trying to get a grasp of the language, mm-hmm. you yeah. know, and to actively be a part of their education and be a disciplinarian in that way mm-hmm. or even be a mentor in the way that you can assist with homework or answer questions or, you know, that's crazy. I'd never even thought about that. It, it must have been really hard. Yeah. I mean, it, and she grew up in a, in a very small town, you know, and in the States. Um, everybody knew each other, you know, it was a very small, tight-knit community. And then come to Japan where, like you said, like the language is different, the culture is different, the relationship between teachers, the parents and students are very different. Like, I remember my mom telling me, like, when my brother first started going to gymnastics school, when he was, like, I don't know, three, he must have been three or four, he came with a huge red mark on his face. And my mom asked him, what happened? And he said the the teacher told him to take off his shoe and he smacked him across the face because he didn't get the move right. What? Yeah. So my mom took my brother, marched into that gymnastic class and said, I'm not letting my kid take gymnastics anymore. This is ridiculous. And she just like pulled him out of the class. And it was just like, wow, like now you can't even imagine. But back then in Japan, I mean, even when I was growing up in the 80s, like, Teachers will smack the kids all over the place. Like, they'll smack the, you know, across your face. If if we forgot um, a map for geography class, you get smacked on the cheeks. That was just a protocol. Like, if you forget, all right, line up. Whoever forgot your map book, you got to get smacked across the face. And that was just oh how my it God. was. Yeah. That is crazy. I mean, sometimes you want to hit a kid, but like, <laughs> I'm teasing, I'm it, teasing. <laughs> But it's like, it's like, line up, I'm going to smack all of you for for forgetting your material. Wow. It's just like nothing you can do about it, because that's how it was. Like, I remember my friend was bleeding from his mouth because he was being, like, punched by this female PE teacher. You're kidding. No. 
Wow. It's crazy, yeah. Well, hopefully that has changed. Yeah, it has. <laughs> it has. They, I don't think they could smack kids anymore, which is good because that's yeah. just crazy, you know. Yeah. And but that's not I'm... happening at the kindergarten, we know. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. We're, we are very oh my professional. God. That's right. <laughs> we love our kids that we, you know, take care of. So, yeah, that, nothing like that. Yeah, a little dark turn. <laughs> I mean, our parents could probably tell us some horror stories of like growing oh, up in a sure. 60s, 70s like school system, especially Catholic school system. I remember my dad and my uh, my mom used to talk mm-hmm. about like the nuns with the rulers and they would wrap it across <laughs> your knuckles if you did something. Yeah. So I'm like, what was going on in like the 60s, 70s with like education? Yeah. My God, kids Very need to be kept in time. line. <laughs> on their toes. Yeah. So your brother took gymnastics, but you were in dance, right? Uh, yes. Um, not until I was 14, though, because uh, I was really into basketball like my brother was until yeah. end of junior high. And then I retired. That's what they call it when you finish junior high. <laughs> Retire uh, basketball. I really wanted to start dancing. So I enrolled in dance class in a, in like a neighborhood dance studio and uh, I was hooked immediately. I was like, can I take more classes, mom? And she was like, okay, just one more. And then it turned out to be like 12 classes a week and <laughs> like working part-time at the dance studio so I could, you know, help pay for my classes and kind of like a work-study situation. Yeah. And yeah, so I started with dance in jazz, ballet, modern. And then when I was 18, I met hip-hop and I fell in love instantly. And I, I'm still in love with hip-hop to this yeah. day. Yeah. And it's taken me around the world because of my passion for hip hop. And I I couldn't be more grateful for the opportunity to dance. Yeah, everyone listening, Becky is an incredible hip hop dancer. And so I've had the pleasure of seeing her perform a few times. And when we were living together, I remember we went to that Vogue ball um, (laughs) like late at night. It was like, I don't know, one of the first few months of us living together. And Mm. I remember going to so if you've seen pose it was like kind of like a little baby version of that um (laughs) started late at night it was like two in the morning uh and it was just so much fun like the energy was electric and you got out there and you were you know like killing it it was just it was was, that was actually my first time going into a vogue really yeah i mean i took vogue classes and i always liked voguing but i was like you know what fuck it let me just do it because i want to yeah I want to just see how I do. And it was, it was so much fun. And I hear you guys cheering me on. And yes. I don't know, just, it was so much fun. Yeah. It was so much fun. And then you you did Red Nose Day with Nick Cannon. Yeah. So that was cool. We were, I think it was NBC Studios, I think, did yeah. that? Yeah. Uh-huh. So we were there By in Rockefeller their studios Center. at Rockefeller Center. Yep. <laughs> and uh, Ladies of Hip Hop, you've performed. And yes. Just, and then Amazing also. Experience. Yeah, doing some freestyle. But like before we really get into that, mm-hmm. you said you started dance at 14? Yes. And were your peers younger, same age? Like, did you ever feel like you were outside of the typical age to start dance? I was aware that, you know, most people start dancing ballet at like age three or four. And I didn't. And I wasn't flexible at all. So I mm. was like trying to stretch every day to get more flexible. And... I was just mainly getting it, getting the training in so that I, I had a solid foundation um, of ballet. And because I really liked modern dance and jazz at the time, I, I really mainly did it so that I could become a better, stronger dancer. Yeah. But I never really felt like I was a ballerina because I don't really have the body type for ballerina. I started late, um, but I just loved dancing. So I, I really didn't care, you know, if, if I didn't really look 
the way I should in a tutu or yeah, <laughs> you know, ballet shoes with tights. But yeah, it was it was fun anyways for me. So were you aware of hip hop before you tried, like before you were introduced to the method, or was it something that you just completely found? No, I um I. I mean, I think I've heard of hip hop dance when I started dancing jazz, but there was a hip hop class at that studio, like newly uh, integrated hip hop dance class into that um, dance studio, which was always like just classical until then. So I was like, oh, this looks fun. So I took it and I love the music. I love how free I felt Mm. when when I danced hip hop. So I started taking more classes in Osaka and I just fell in love and I, I, I never stopped dancing hip hop since then. I just feel like it kind of helps me. It helped me find who I am, uh, not just because of the dancing, but because I made such amazing friends through hip hop dance that yeah. really accepted me for who I am. And it wasn't like uh, it wasn't about who are you or what are you? It was like more about what can you bring to the group? What, what kind of cool stuff can we do together? Like, I love hip hop, you love hip hop, great. You know, let's 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 practice and let's go into competitions and let's perform and do something creative together. Yeah. So I feel like that really kind of helped me become who I am and find my identity through hip hop, through the dancers that I met. And, you know, I consider them family after 20 years. You know, they're, they continue to like inspire me and do, do the best I can. Yeah. And talk about bridging cultures like hip hop was founded here in New York, mm-hmm. you know, as a as a movement, as a cultural movement. And um, for it to, to take on this life in Japan and for you to find it there and, you know, mm-hmm. for it to now shape what is your career, you know, that's that's really cool. Did you feel like it spoke to a part of you that um, like, I guess, kind of the American part of you that, you know, it's finding that aspect there in Japan, you know, kind of like merging the two sides of you in one Mm -hmm. art form, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. I just feel like hip hop is very um, universal. And, you know, it's 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 a cultural phenomenon that has influenced the world. I mean, all over the world, you know, it's not just the States, not just Asia, it's everywhere in the world, people you know, come together because of the love for hip hop, the music, the dance, the culture, the art. And it, it's such a beautiful phenomenon. And I, I'm I'm just so grateful that I found hip hop because, you know, the, the friends I made, the places I went that has shaped my life is is really, really because of hip hop. Yeah. And and I just I couldn't imagine my life without hip hop. Yeah. And who have been some of the most influential like teachers to you? So I I I love the style. The New York style is, is my favorite. <laughs> That's why I moved to New York so I could really learn from, you know, the people that originated hip hop. So Yeah. You know, I, I respect so many teachers, but the people that really influenced me are like Tweety, Stretch, uh, Kim Holmes, uh, Bev, who I taught uh, who I learned from, uh, who taught me. When I first moved to New York, I was her assistant, and she was the one that gave me my first job at Broadway Dance Center as an assistant instructor. So she really opened up the door for me into New York. So um, I don't know, it's just so many people. And, and of course, my big brother in Osaka, Tetsu-san. Yeah. Much respect to him because he gave me one of my first 
uh, classes that I taught in Osaka. And every time I go back, he's like, hey, you know, you could do a workshop whenever you come back. So what you do like, yeah. And, and I'm just yeah. so grateful that I still have a place in Japan, even though I've been away for 17 years now. Wow. I, I still have a family that like always welcomes me home, you know, yeah. my dance family. And it's just amazing to have that. I don't know, strong family, you know, yeah. through dance and the love for hip hop. Yeah, I think in anything, especially being a creative, you know, whatever your art form happens to be, it's so important to have a community and a family that you can feel free to create with, mm-hmm. you know, because that one, not only do they inspire you, but two, they keep you afloat in the sense of saying like your work is valid, your voice is valid and what you're yeah. doing in this space is so important. So please keep doing it, mm-hmm. you know, so it's it's just important as an artist in any form or fashion to have absolutely a community which i know is huge to you and also mm-hmm. part of your business initiative as well yes <laughs> so i i really feel like creativity doesn't happen in a void it happens when you have like you just said a group of people that you trust that you respect that share that mutual uh respect and you could bounce, you know, your ideas off of each other. You could be like, okay, I like this idea, but what if we add something else to that? And it just keeps growing. It's not like, well, that's a stupid idea. Yeah. You know, like it, you you never hear that in, in a group of people that really, I don't know, uh, trust each other and respect each other. It's like, okay, I like that idea. And what if we do this to that idea? And then just, you know, it kind of grows from there and the creativity just continues to kind of push itself forward. Yeah. So with that being said, the company that I founded in in the UK is called the Unified Wolves. And I wanted to create a company that helps performing artists get more substantial income because I myself really struggled financially in New York. I mean, as you know, it's it's hard just paying rent. I had to work at restaurants. I needed to teach. I needed to translate documents, interpretation, just to keep paying the rent. And I was like, there's something wrong with this picture. Like, why do I have to have three jobs? Like, why can't I just concentrate all my energy into my love for dance? Yeah. So that's when I would decided to go to the UK to, to study and to study about business because I had no sense of business with, with more entrepreneurial skills. Mm -hmm. uh, I wanted to help create jobs for performing artists so that they, they can express themselves and their passion through what they love to do and still get, pay that reflects the hard hard work and effort that they put into yeah because a lot of times i remember like when i was in new york sometimes i'll do a gig and they're like oh you know here's here's uh forty dollars like, <laughs> 40 bucks i'm like do you know how many hours i just put into you don't you know you just see the three minutes of dance but i spent at least two hours selecting music yeah uh you know, at least six hours of rehearsals with my dancers that I also need to pay. Yeah, <laughs> it's not just me. It's always you know, usually a group of people. So I'm like, okay. So when you end end up calculating, it's like you're making two dollars an hour. Yeah, and it just doesn't make sense. So and I feel like I, and I I still feel like the best way is to collaborate in order to secure payment. Yeah, collaborate with other companies that are willing to pay dancers that have the means to pay dancers what we what we deserve to be paid. And to make that collaboration happen, I thought, okay, maybe if I market um, these companies through dance, then it's, it's like a win-win. So I'm solving two problems. One, 
is that performing artists often lack the financial means mm-hmm. um, to continue dancing. They have to like, you know, do other jobs just to keep dancing. And the second problem is a lot of times uh, companies don't know how or they're not sure how to make an impactful marketing campaign. Mm. So I was like, OK, you know, performing artists, we're, we're best at making a scene. Oh, and, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I love that. Yeah. I don't know. We are educated and we are trained to express ourselves and to create a memorable experience. And interestingly enough, what what is really in right now in marketing is experiential marketing. So, yeah, the, you know, experiences that kind of shape, you know, how brands interact with customers and customers feel about that brand. And it becomes more memorable and it's an experience because you're not just looking at a screen. Yeah, you're triggering email. Yeah, you're triggering a response from people and an, an emotional response, a hopefully a positive yeah, exactly. emotional response. Or maybe it's something that's touching, you know, but mm-hmm. you're what you're trying to do is imprint on your customer a sense of feeling that relates to your brand, which is perfect for dance. I mean, you know, it's so expressive. That that's exactly my point. Yeah. And um that's what I'm endeavoring to pursue yeah. in the UK. So, so like through Unified Wolves, you've done like some flash mobs partnering with have, some companies, correct? Yes. I partner with a company that's all about sustainability and uh, renew, reusing materials to, uh, in the hopes of achieving zero waste. Mm. Um, and I've teamed up with uh, international chain of restaurants that wanted marketing through dance and they had us travel to five countries across three continents which was one of the best dance gigs i've ever had in my life and uh that was a phenomenal experience for me as a dancer and also we've teamed up with uh charities we teamed up to come with companies that um sell dog clothes cute Um, yeah so it's it's really like all kinds of companies that uh show interest in our and what we do, because really we, you know, they say you need to have a target market, which is true uh, to a certain extent, because if, if you can offer your services to different sectors, different type of, you know, businesses, why not? Yeah. So that's, that's my, uh, that's my new thing that I'm really enjoying. Yeah, <laughs> no, I love it. I think being able to uh, bridge that disparity for creatives as far as pay goes is so important, mm. because I feel like most creatives don't truly generate their best work because they're working from a place of scarcity mm. you know you're constantly worried about as as you just prefaced you're constantly worried about paying your bills and meeting things mm-hmm. on time or you're working three different jobs just to make rent yeah. or whatever it happens to be so really how much of your artwork whatever it happens to be whether it's performance visual or you know you're an actor or something along those lines filmmaker where your art is suffering because you you're not able to give it full dedication and energy because you're constantly worried about making your bare necessities exactly you know and and i realize there's so many artists that struggle the same way yeah you know it's it's not just the uh few people here and there it's the majority i would say it's the majority of the performing artists and artists community that like you said oh my gosh how am i gonna you know pay for my paints next month yeah if i need to pay my rent first you know yeah but if if we creatives come together and we usually work as lone wolves but if we come <laughs> together as a pack we we're stronger more creative yes you know 
that makes me think of Sansa's quote from Game of Thrones because I just have to throw it right there where it's like, when winter comes, the lone wolf dies, but the pack survives. Yes. That is so true. That is so true. Like, we got to stick together, help each other out, look out for each other, you know, like, because we have so much to offer the world as, as artists. And it's it's such a shame if we don't get to create, if we don't get to express all the amazing things we have inside of us and I feel like if I can help in any way to help one more dancer get paid what they deserve and feel good about what the jobs that they do then why not you know yeah and I would say that like your creativity whatever it is and creativity again takes so many forms and fashions right but I would say creativity is the one thing that we are all here to accomplish, no matter who you are, whether you're a banker or you're a dancer, you know, Mm -hmm. and for that to not be fully realized and expressed is probably the greatest, like, injustice. Mm. So. I I agree. Yeah. Well. And everybody has something to express, you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. And when I say, like, a banker, like, it could be, maybe it's like your side hobby, but I just Mm -hmm. think that creativity touches us all it absolutely does Mm -hmm. and i think it's the most pure expression of spirituality in that way because you're Mm -hmm. leaving you're creating something like it's that idea of bringing something into existence that didn't previously exist you know even if it's something that may have taken form through somebody else it's coming through your perspective this time around yeah you know so i think we should all be out there creating. And it's amazing that we have someone like you who is dedicating their work to opening up spaces for creatives to be more financially fulfilled so that they can more freely mm-hmm. create and make the art that they are here to make. Thank you. And I hope I can contribute to to everybody's work that yeah. wants to create. And I think it's, it's, it's a very exciting job that yeah. um, I'm honored to have. Yeah. And where can we find out more about the Unified Wolves? Uh, so Twitter, Instagram, you can find us at the Unified Wolves. And okay. we also have a website, theunifiedwolves.com. Great. Excellent. And you're UK based? Yes, I am. All right. So for any of our UK listeners, if you are in the marketing department of your company or you are looking for a cool creative way to promote your business or your initiative definitely get in contact with rebecca and the unified wolves and they can put something cool together for you and um becky if somebody wanted to take a class of yours you are teaching in london at the moment yes i'm teaching at equinox kensington uh every saturday 1 to 145 it's cardio hip-hop funk awesome and i'll be starting a new class at base in uh, vauxhall london starting may 9th Cool. Uh, it's every, let's see, Thursday from 5.30 to 6.45. Awesome. And when you're back in Japan, you also do some workshops as well. Yes. I usually teach at Studio Alley-Oop Cool. In so when that happens and you're interested in taking a class, if you are Japan-based, we will post that information as well. So you can join Rebecca and learn all things hip-hop. And she's amazing. I'm a terrible dancer, but I have, I have taken no, classes of yours. <laughs> you got rhythm. That's yeah, a little bit. I remember when we were <laughs> trying to, well, you're trying to teach me the Missy routine that you had. And I was just oh, like, oh, mm. yes, that was so yeah. much fun. It was a good time. Yes, well, very good time. So if we do want to follow you um, and stay up to date with all of your dance related projects and your workshops, where can we do that? 
uh yeah so you can follow me on rebecca underscore hip-hop dancer on instagram awesome and then all of your workshop details are posted there and as you mentioned you are teaching at equinox and soon to be Vauxhall in may all right yes well becky thank you so much for joining me today for this episode and again, if you would like to download a copy of Paulo Coelho's The Alchemist, you can do so by going to www.audible.com forward slash typed out and begin your 30 day trial and listen along to The Alchemist for free. And it's life changing. Like I have the I have a hard copy here that I have been meaning to read for the longest time, but I have heard through so many people that it is just a life changing book. It really is. And thank you so much for having me, Nick. It's been a pleasure. And I always enjoy talking to you. Likewise. My Nate Chan. Yes. Arigato gozaimashita. Arigato. All right. Well, thank you, listeners. We will be back on Tuesday with your regularly programmed Typed Out episodes. So, as always, I have been your host, Nick Polifrone. This has been a Typed Out production. Rebecca, thank you one more time. Thank and you, we Nick. will see you all next week. Bye. Bye.